a few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, save the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today. How to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite. We want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients and to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things. To be seen, to be heard, and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. And so that creativity, I mean, in some respects, Healthcare did need to reinvent itself. Certainly in the UK, the NHS, which is a fantastic and phenomenal organisation, but it's somewhat stuck in its ways and very traditional and paternalistic in its model. And certainly looking at healthcare systems around the world, it was evident that things needed almost to get a shake up. This was not necessarily the shake up that we'd wanted, but it is the opportunity. And we're right at the cusp of well, we're now into the fourth industrial revolution and AI is starting to go in ways that it had never been imagined before. I mean, the advances in technology in the last 25 years have been huge. And Dave, my partner who you know, who works in industry, his business and their organization are looking at how we operate in Mars so that we can do Mars exploration. It's not that far away. And in some ways, it seems ironic that we're looking at doing that and having a manned mission to the moon in two years' time, yet we still can't quite work out how to operate in COVID. So where do you think that technology will go in the next 10 years? I wish that I was smart enough to be able to answer that. (laughs) But you are. (laughs) I have. I've frequently wondered about things just like that. What is the next way of doing things? How do you stimulate people? How do you teach people? How do you communicate with orthopedic surgeons? I'm not thinking of this in terms of the next new product. You know, too much of orthopedics has been driven by technology, and technology is driven by me too, rather than innovation, that is a game changer. So that if you look at the world of orthopedic implants, there's very little that's different. Mm. Uh, There's very little that's really innovative and new. So has our practice of orthopedics 
really changed? No. The principles of what we do today are very similar to those which I began with in 1984. (laughs) And, of course, our ideas and perhaps the way we do things are a little bit different. They've evolved. We understand ways of not doing things. But the way we communicate ideas, the way we help our colleagues grow, learn, that has to change. And there, of course, as an educator, I'm in a position to help and hopefully embrace that change and be an innovator in bringing about change. But when it comes to the next wave of technology, where is it going to come from? I don't even know that it's relevant right now to our discussion of COVID and many of these things are forced upon us. And I have to deal with the reality of continuing a humanitarian organization and providing humanitarian service in its broadest aspect for the next five to 10 years. And what are we going to look like in a year? I don't know, because I have absolutely no idea as I sit here today on June the 13th, 2020, whether or not this disease is still going to be with us in one year from now. I would like to think that it's all over with and we can return to normal. We are never going to return to the way we were because this has been a change that is going to be permanent in many ways. And one of the reasons it's going to be permanent is that along with the changes that have been forced upon us through lockdown and home quarantines, has been a gradual change in philosophy of the younger generation of orthopedic surgeons over the past two decades, moving towards more and more lifestyle and embracing different values than we entertained 30 to 40 years ago. Because our life 30 years ago was very much focused on hard work and perhaps for some of us, academic productivity. That's not the way it has been over the past decade where lifestyle has become important. And all of a sudden, COVID has introduced and forced upon us the new lifestyle. There is a new way of living where we've had to be at home and we as surgeons have to adapt. And are we going to return back to 14 to 16 hour days of work? I don't think so. I think it's going to have a beneficial outcome in some respects on the way we think and the way we practice. We now have to think about changing our mission, changing the way we do things as an organization, as a humanitarian organization, the hands-on humanitarian service that is going to continue. Oh, you have to realize that there's now risk and there's reward. The risk is that of getting ill because of international travel. And the reward, of course, is, is all the reward that accrues, which you will know having participated with us on our humanitarian programming. You've articulated there very well about how life has changed for surgeons. And I agree with you. I, I think people have 
really embraced the benefits of being at home and realized how hard we did work beforehand and also got the chance to get to know our local communities much, much better in a way that we didn't before. But the trade-off of of that is that you're not able to necessarily see family members in the same way as you have done. But the thing about orthopaedics as a specialty, and we have a real challenge in the UK at the moment, is about how we restart. It took us three weeks to lock everything down, and it is going to take anywhere between one to five years for us to get back, which is astonishing. But when you think about it, hip replacements and knee replacements, third and fourth most common operations in the NHS, they didn't exist when the NHS started. But orthopaedics is very much a wellness specialty considered by most. And the work that you do, I think, really highlights there's aspects of orthopaedics that is not wellness, it's need. How do you think for Western societies the the need of orthopaedics should be addressed when we go back to the lift coming out? Priority-wise, do we just need to sit and wait for everybody else to go first? Rose, I'm not in a great position to answer that. My focus for four years has been so intensely dedicated and devoted to humanitarian service. I'm not thinking actively currently about how to practice orthopedics in the Western world, in the hospitals that our colleagues are accustomed to. That's going to change. Inevitably, that will change, and there are going to be policymakers who perhaps are controlling what gets done, how it gets done, rather than orthopedic surgeons who make the decisions for themselves. I can only look at it from a standpoint of need. The need for humanitarian service is far greater today than it was six months ago. Far greater because your communities in need are now without service. And not only that, but the dollars that have gone to support nonprofit organizations, to support these communities in underserved regions of the world, they're not there. And there's a desperate need for what we do. And I'm focusing on a very small aspect of orthopedic care, foot and ankle deformities. However, I must say that when you think about foot and ankle deformities, if you are a child with a crippling foot and ankle deformity, you're not able to get educated. You're not able to ultimately be employed. You suffer. The family suffer. Your community suffers. And that's from foot and ankle deformities. We're not talking about arthritis. We're not talking about post-traumatic arthritis. We're talking about congenital developmental deformity. And this is rife worldwide. We don't see that very often any longer in the Western world. These patients have access for care early on. So there's a desperate need that is going to be far greater at the end of COVID, whenever that is, than it existed before. Do you think that the experience of COVID for the surgeons that have not entered into doing humanitarian work yet may well entice them more towards that? Yes and no. In the short term, definitely not. And by short term, I mean the next year. And that's because of uncertainty, trepidation, 
anxiety about travel, working in high-risk regions of the world, economic impact that COVID has had on orthopedic surgeons globally is substantial. To expect and hope that these surgeons are going to take off a week of their time and practice and give it to humanitarian service right now may be unrealistic. It takes a very special person to reallocate their resources and say, humanitarian service is very important to me, and I'm going to continue with this regardless. I think that in a year, things will improve again. I think we will all have learned from this sufficiently that humanitarian service will benefit from it in the long run because we'll have more volunteers, people who recognize the impact that they can have in this specialty field. But in the short term, we're going to face rather specific issues that we have to overcome. And do you think that people are looking to go back to the financial model of how they lived before? Or is there, and I include industry and implant companies and everybody in that, or is there a desire to say, this is a time for us to pause reset and just shake everything up and do it differently? Um, I think you have to separate out industry from the individual orthopedic surgeon. The industry is driven by profit. Industry is not necessarily driven by the reality of what has taken place. They've had to make substantial adjustments because of the economic impact of COVID on hospitals. Hospitals around the world, certainly in the US, on a hiring freeze right now. That plus the changes in orthopedic practice have impacted industry. We have to separate the two. The practice of orthopedics, I think, is going to change, but it's far too early to be able to predict what it's going to look like. As I said earlier, I think that we have enjoyed an aspect of this lockdown, which is sharing time with our families in a in a very special way. And that will continue for many surgeons that they're not going to return to the same model of practice. When you talk about changing the entire industry and the way we do things, that's a philosophical discussion, which is going to be an economic model that I'm not in a position to answer. career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies and not the media to decide what our collective future should be. 
I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more, or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch. 